1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, is where we're going to be tonight. John, in this epistle, as we all know, has been talking a great deal about love. And uh, he's talking about light, talking about love, and these sort of things. And specifically, one of the things that we talked about even last week was the fact that if we are of God, then we will love one another. That's one of the tests that we have to show that things are right between us and God is that we love each other. But we've also touched on this. The reality is loving others is not always easy. Can I get an amen? amen. Clearly, it is easier said than done. Uh, after all, at, at the heart of love is serving others the way that we have been served by Jesus. And so sometimes that service is public and noble and newsworthy, and sometimes it's private and humiliating and unnoticed. It, it can be a real challenge. And none of, none of us lives perfectly like Christ, right? Is anybody here perfect? Now, I don't see any hands up. <coughs> Excuse me. None of us live perfectly like Christ. None of us exhibits continual self-sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of us have moments when we mistreat our brethren or, uh, by, by our actions, neglecting them in their time of need, lashing out at them with our words, failing to minister to them as fellow members of the body, and so we, we may not be shedding blood like Cain did to Abel. Because remember last week, the passage, he said, don't be like Cain. And, and, and we may not be like Cain in, in that we're shedding blood, but we frequently find ourselves failing to love the brethren as Christ loved us. And John, John knows that we're all in this place of this in-between, this, this, this place where uh, we're, we're in this predicament where, in which we know the good that we ought to do, but we just fail to do it. And that's why I'm so glad he wrote the important words of encouragement in the verses that we're about to read. Let's just read it together and we'll just dive in. We're going we're gonna to read verses 19 through 22. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Now, as Christians proceed in their lives with Christ, it will happen at times that their hearts will accuse them. Whatever the source, you know, whether it's an overactive conscience, whether it's a realization that they just, they just don't love others enough, or maybe it's even because it's false accusations from the enemy. Uh, you know, because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But for whatever reason, they feel the accusation. And whenever this happens, this is how John says, I want you to know how when, you're, when your heart is condemning you, when your heart doesn't and your, your emotions are telling you things aren't right, this is how you can know that you belong to the truth. And so he said, he said, for, uh, the, he said, for God is greater than our hearts. And that's a very ambiguous statement. And the, the ambiguity of that statement has prompted two different interpretations. Some think, and, and this is the minority, and I, I don't, uh, I, I, this is not where I fall, but some think that the phrase intensifies John's warning, that, that the condemning voice of the conscience just merely echoes the judgment of God who knows each life. Thus, believers can't gloss over, excuse their sins as insignificant. But there are others, and this would be where I fall, others see the phrase, for God is greater than our hearts, as intended to console believers <clears throat> whose hearts condemn, condemn them of sin. And they, 
they can hold on to, one of the things they can hold on to is the sign of sonship, of God's love. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that and what that really means. Uh, but, but God sees the heart, but he also sees the actions. The actions. Uh, um, Th- Thomas Akempis, he said this. He said, man sees the deed, but God knows the intention. And, um, and so men can only judge us by our actions, but God can judge us by the longings that actually never became deeds the temptations that we never gave into, the dreams that never came true, the, that, the perfect knowledge that belongs to God and to God alone. Uh, for, for many people, to hear that God knows everything is a source of terror, but it's, it's not a source of terror for us. It's really our, our very hope. God's voice of assurance is stronger than the accusing voice of conscience. And we're going to be talking about some of these things tonight. Genuine believers who waffle between Cain and Christ. You know, he, he said, John, excuse me, John said, don't be like Cain. We want to be like Christ. But the truth is a lot of real, honest, genuine followers of Christ. At times we find ourselves waffling between the two. Sometimes we're a little more like Cain and other times we're a little more like Christ. But if that's you, then we, we need to remember that we're not made righteous by our works but by faith in the name of the Son of God. This is what he ties it all together with because he says, he says God is greater of hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence with God and receive everything him, uh, from him, everything, anything we ask. But, but he's talking about the assurance of knowing that we are saved because of what Christ has done for us and it's in faith. And, and, and actually it's in the next verse <clears throat> that I will read in a moment. But he says, this is the command to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he ties it to faith in that passage. When sin inevitably finds its way into our thoughts and our words and our actions, we can still have assurance before God who who is greater than our self-condemning hearts. He knows us. He knows us. He knows the genuineness of our faith. He knows all about our bouts with evil and our struggles with habitual sins and he, he provides the strength to overcome them by his spirit and and John's desire in this passage is to strengthen our assurance and so he says you're not like Cain and a doubter might hear John say that and he might re- the, the doubter might respond but you can't see my heart John last week I was really 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 angry at one of the elders and his wife no, 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 John's, John responds. Look at the totality of your life. You kept the faith even when you were challenged by false teaching. You consistently provided for the poor in the church. You opened your home to the hurting and you reached out to the lost, all motivated by your faith in Christ and your love for others. And he's saying, don't look at one moment and condemn yourself to, to, to an eternity without God in that moment and say, I'm, I, I'm not saved. Then the doubter says, but I, you don't understand, John. I punched that deacon in the mouth yesterday. And, uh, and John shakes his head and says, and, and says, look, the fact that you feel remorse for these things means that you're definitely not like Cain. See, the, the spirit, he says, is prodding your conscience. You just need to respond to it. He goes back. You can go back to 1 John 1, 9 that he already, already wrote. And he's saying you need to confess your sins against God. You need to reconcile with your brothers and sisters, sacrifice your pride and make amends. 
The truth is, sometimes I doubt. Sometimes I disobey. Sometimes hate comes seemingly out of nowhere, and these things bother me. That's, that's bad, right? No, it's actually good. Because those who do not know Christ wrestle with none of those issues. They don't ask those kind of questions. Such issues do not bother those with hard hearts. So the fact that my heart is still is torn up when I do something wrong, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because it tells me that my heart is not hardened and, and those things can trouble the, the honest, true Christian. And when your heart hurts and your conscience condemns you, it's that moment we have to look to Christ and look to the gospel because he is greater than our conscience. He is greater than our heart and he knows all things. And so we put our, we walk by faith, not by how we feel. That's, that's the part of what he's saying. God is greater than all and he knows all. Now, here's the thing. The fact that God knows everything seems to us like that's a, like a counterintuitive reassurance because here's, here's my personal, you know, when I hear something like that, my first response in the natural is to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God knows everything, then surely my goose is cooked. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But it actually shows us the opposite. Because God knows all about our sin. There's nothing hidden from his view. And that, that's frightening for, you know, when you, if you're not, if you're not repentant before him, but, but it's actually for us, it's ultimately reassuring because think about this. God has brought us into his family, even while knowing the full extent of our sin. So, you know, there's no reason to begin to doubt his love now that I become more aware of my own sin. See, what happens is as I grow in Christ, I become more and more sensitive to his, his voice and I become more and more aware of the sin and the things I need to deal with. But that doesn't mean that suddenly God has become aware of it. He already knew about all that. He knew about every sin that I ever have, have committed, I ever will commit when he adopted me into his family, he already knew that. So now at this moment, when my, when it's revealed to me and my heart sees that I've got this issue I need to deal with, that's reassuring to me because now I know, wait a minute, God already knew about that. He's the one showing this to me so that I can repent and make it right. And, and so the, the fact that he has been aware of that from the beginning and yet he still reached out to make me his child, that's where the reassurance comes from. Knowing that God knows everything and that he has adopted us as his children is a powerful moment of reassurance when our heart begins to doubt, when we begin to say, I don't know, I'm just not sure where I am with God, then we can look at his word and we can say, wait a minute, God, I know from his word that I'm adopted into the family of God because of what Christ did and because of my repentance, because of my confession, I know that I'm a child of God and God knew about this sin when he adopted me. That means he hasn't just suddenly changed his mind and stopped loving me. And so it's a point of reassurance. He, he's the perfect judge. He sees, he knows, yet he, he still accepts us in Christ. Remembering who we, are, who we are in Christ will provide assurance as we stand before the perfect judge, who, by the way, also 
happens to be our Father. You hear what I'm saying? It gives us assurance because, yes, we will stand before the perfect judge, but that perfect judge is our Father. The, the essence of this reassurance is that our right standing with God is not determined by our subjective feelings. God is bigger than that. We do not live by our feelings. Let me tell you something. If you try to exist by your feelings, you'll be up one day and down the next. For some of us, it's up one minute and down the next. Some days, it's like, that's all you can do. And so if, if we're just basing everything we have on what, our, what we feel, then, then, then that's not faith. That's not faith. Because that's not what, what faith does. From, from love, the Father has made us His children. This means that the believer can have assurance in His presence, even if we experience subjective guilt. And that guilt, listen, listen, when you feel that in our hearts, we have to evaluate. And what I have to do is I have to I have to look and say, OK, is there a reason for this? Have I done something that is that is not pleasing to God? And if so, then I confess that sin. And if I confess that sin to God, then he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So that's the first thing to do. But I also know that there are also a lot of people that are living with false guilt. They're, they're feeling guilty for, for things that, that, that God is not holding them accountable for. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, kind of a, not a very good example of, the, of that, but I'll, I'll give you one. You know, it's very, very common in families that are broken, families that, have, uh, that go through a divorce, especially with younger children. It's, it's very common for those children to somehow think that the divorce is their fault. And they end up carrying around guilt for something that they had nothing to do with. And, and so, and if that's the case, if you realize, if you get into it and you begin to evaluate it and you realize, wait a minute, this has, this has nothing to do with anything that I've done, then you can release that and let it go and you can, you can ignore that. Um, but but th this, our all wise Lord uh, is aware uh, that true believers, even though plagued by inconsistency, still have an underlying desire to obey him in the challenge to lo love others. And so he knows all, which tells me, yes, he does know my sin. But that's not a bad thing because he knew that before he saved me. But he also tells me he knows my heart that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to deliver him. I'm trying to follow him. And so he, he, he knows that better than anybody else. In fact, uh, you know, when I make a mistake, men can look on the outward part and they can judge me for that. But God knows what I, what, what's really going on inside of my heart. But what's the point of the passage? I think part of it is don't be overly hard on yourself. You know, I'm not saying ignore it. Don't ignore sin. But I'm saying don't be overly hard on yourself. Realize everybody struggles. Everybody has sin. And so you're not unique in, in creation and you can then just deal with it. Conf as he said in, in 1 John 1, 9, confess that sin, deal with it, take care of it, get, get it over with, get it behind you. But it also, uh, the second part of that is don't let false guilt overwhelm you. And I think, I think one way to say it is instead of focusing on your failures, focus on your father who knows your deep desire to do what's right. You know, it's like the illustration I've used before of, of uh, 
that I, one of the things that taught me so much about my walk with the Lord was, was having children. When you have children, you learn so much about the father heart of God. And, and I can remember when my girls started walking, and I know you've heard this illustration, but it fits in so well here. When they first started walking, uh, they'd take a few steps and fall. You know, and, and you know, and it, it never once in that whole process. But and when that happened, by the way, we were never we were never uh, upset about the fall. We were just excited about the steps. Right. So, you know, after two or three days of, of walking a little bit and falling a lot, I never went to my oldest daughter, Aaron, and say, what's wrong with you? Don't why don't you have this down yet? I can do it. Your mom can do it. If we get a treat, the dog can do it all the way around the kitchen. Why can't you do this? No, it was, we were never upset about any of the falls. It was always just rejoicing over the steps that were taken. And I think what taught me a lot, that taught me a lot about my relationship with God because yes, I fall sometimes, but he's not up in heaven saying, Oh, good grief. What is wrong with you? No, no, no. He's the one saying, uh, he's the one speaking to me saying, all right, yeah, you fell. That was a sin. That was not a good idea. That was a bad choice there. But but get up. Don't give up. Look how far you've come. Look how many steps you've taken. Look how what I've already done in your life. So get up and let's keep walking. And I think that's the idea behind this is that is that when our hearts condemn us and sometimes sometimes we're the last people to forgive ourselves. And when our hearts condemn us and we and we, uh, we just find it hard to move on, we can look to God and say, wait a minute, God is greater. God is greater than my heart. God is greater than this sin. It's not going to hold me back because he has brought me this far, and I'm not going to let this stop me from moving forward. Our confidence before God comes down to who God is. Who God is. And he is greater than our hearts. He's bigger than our subjective feelings of self-condemnation. And our status depends on his promise to us in Christ Jesus, not on how we feel. And having come to, ter having come to terms with that fact, we then can rest assured and we can fear no more. We can walk with peace. Now, because believers have this assurance, we're told that they can approach God with confidence. And John's statement of confidence before God means that believers have the assurance that they are accepted by God and can therefore boldly bring their request into God's presence. This confidence is rooted in the truth that God knows everything and that our wavering, fickle hearts don't affect His love for us. And the, the term confidence he uses here conveys the notion of boldness. That's the idea behind it. We have a boldness in His presence. Uh, and because of this confidence, because of this boldness, the confidence we have in God's love for us and, and the confidence we have in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, because of that, now we don't shy away from prayer. You see, because, uh, I mean, we don't skulk in the margins while others go to God with their, their requests because few things keep people from genuine prayer to their Heavenly Father more than an unconfessed sin and a, and a resulting guilty conscience. We, you can see it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they sin. And then God comes walking through the garden asking a question, which by the way, remember this, anytime God asks a question, he's not asking it because he needs the answer. He already knows the answer. He's asking it because he wants you to see the answer. And there come, God comes walking through the garden and says, Adam, where are you? 
He knows where Adam is. He's not hidden from God's sight. But he wants Adam to see, to see I'm, I am separated from you is where I am. Why did Adam hide? Why did he not want to come into the presence of God? Because of sin. Because of shame. And that's one of the things that keeps us out of his presence. But now he says, listen, because we know we have been cleansed by the, by the blood of Christ um, and, 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 um, and we have a clear conscience before him now, because of that now, we can come into his presence with boldness, without fear. Not because we're good enough, but because he has made us clean. See, shame is a barrier to fellowship with God. But when we confess our sins, when we clear the air, when we walk in the light, we find ourselves going to God confidently and we find ourselves going to God constantly, thanking Him, uh, sharing with Him, talking with Him, worshiping and praising Him, and letting our requests be made known to Him. Now, I will say this, a caveat to that. One of the things we have to be careful is that we, we must be careful not to confuse this kind of, of quiet confidence with glibness or with cockiness. I don't come into the presence of God thinking I'm all that in a bag of chips. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 some, some believers approach God irreverently as, as though he were like an old chum or, or, or a good old buddy of theirs, you know? And, and while he is a friend that sticks closer to our brother, we have to remember he is not like us. We, when we come into his presence, He's not like he's just a one of us that's elevated. He is God. He is the creator of the universe. He is holy. There is no one like him. There's no one that can do the things that he can do. And so when I come into his presence, I come boldly because I'm his, I'm his, because I'm his child. But I also come realizing this is God I'm talking to. And so it's imperative that we maintain a reverent attitude when we seek favors from a loving God who has promised to help us in our time of need. Now, believers' confidence uh, extend beyond status and standing before God because he said believers receive from God whatever they ask. Now, a statement like that, when you read that, sounds like a blank check. Like God will just grant whatever wish anyone wants to ask of him. But the clauses that follow in that sentence give us a lot uh, further light. The reason we receive from him anything we ask he says, and you look at the, at the last part of the verse, it says, is because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now, that doesn't mean that we earn that from God. That's not what he's talking about. It, it actually, it, it follows very closely what Jesus said in his final discourse to his disciples. In John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Uh, when, when a believer is abiding in Christ and Christ's words are abiding in the believer, his or her were, uh, prayers will be answered. Now, that does not mean that all requests are granted regardless of what the request may be. doesn't mean you just get what you want whenever you want it. That's not what it says. The context of John 15 suggests that the prayers should pertain to fruit bearing and they should pertain to glorifying the Father. And the same holds true for John's statement, we will receive whatever, uh, whatever we request. It, let me put it this way. If believers do what pleases Him, that is evidence 
that our wills are aligned with God's will. What did Jesus say? I mean, he, he's, we, when he taught the disciples to pray, he, he's, he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, we're, we're told in, in many, James teaches that we shouldn't say, I'm going to go to such and such city and do this. And I'm going to have these plans. I'm going to do this. He says, we should say, if God wills, then I will do this. So it's not about what we want. It's about what he wants. And when I'm doing what pleases him, when I'm walking in the light, in the light when I'm abiding in Christ, then what, what is happening is I'm showing that my will is aligned with God's will. Uh, and this alignment of wills is an important factor in understanding this so-called blank check that we may receive anything we ask. Confidence in petition before God is grounded in a believer's alignment with God's will and in the context of loving relationships. God will honor believers' requests when they are focused on accomplishing God's will. The Holy Spirit works in, in God's people, teaching us to desire God's will so that then my prayers grow out of my desire to see God's will done. You know, I, I, I like, I, I, I think of it like this. There's, there's a verse in the Old Testament that's, that says, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, some people say, well, if I delight in the Lord, I get whatever I want. I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily what that verse means. I think it says, that if I delight myself in the Lord, He gives me new, new desires. He will give me the desires of my heart. Not that He'll give me everything my heart desires, but He'll give me new wants, new new desires. He will change what He will change my priorities in life. And so, I, I, in essence, then I receive what I'm asking for because I'm asking for that which is already God's will. When we ask according to His will, we always receive that, that, uh, an answer to that prayer. So, He said uh, that we are to keep His command. That's one of the things. So, verse 23, let's read this. What is the command? And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that, that He lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So again, he ties this here, this whole thing to faith in Christ, because he says this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and, and then he says, and to love one another. Now, the commandment is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. So really, this one commandment is sort of two commandments. Uh, but the pairing of these two requirements is is not accidental but it reflects a deep understanding of how belief and love go together faith and love go together it, it, it is it's not possible to do one without the other to have one without the other in, in in this way the two two commands are in effect seen as one because he's saying they're they're, they're just sort of two sides of the same coin the the apostle paul famously said and you'll remember this from first corinthians chapter 13 at the end of verse 2 of that chapter, he said, If I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not what? If I have not love, I am what? Nothing. If I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, of course, 
Paul would not even begin to suggest that love is a substitute for faith. He makes it very, very clear in all of his writings, faith is absolutely necessary. But his point here is that faith without love is not enough. He, he, is, he, is, uh, he said he is nothing without love, even if he has great faith. So that tells us that love then is the essential partner to faith. Indeed, the, the constant refrain throughout 1 John is that a lack of love is evidence of a defective faith. Since, since love comes from, from God, in verse chapter 4, 7, he says that, then whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That's chapter 4, verse 8 of 1 John. So just as it's possible, it's not possible to, to know God without loving, it's also not possible to believe in the name of Jesus without loving. Why, why is this so? Well, part of it is because when you talk about the name of someone, you're talking about who they are, their character, uh, all, all that entails who that person is. That's in the biblical sense, that's what the word name means. That's why names carried so much weight and they had such powerful meanings. And so uh, it, it's partially because of the example that Jesus sets uh, to, to understand Jesus' death for our sins as an act of sacrificial love is to learn the true nature of love, which by its very nature compels us to reach out to others in love. But here's the other side of it. Believing in Jesus changes our view of the world. Putting our faith in Christ doesn't just save us, but it changes our view of the world. Jesus teaches us when we come to him, one of the things we learn is that we are not the center of the universe, right? Isn't that funny? Uh, especially with little girls, it's kind of a funny thing because we, when we raise our little girls and at first, the early part of their life, it's like the world revolves around them. You're a princess and then they become a teenager and they have to take responsibility and then we like, the world doesn't revolve around you. And they're like, when did that happen? <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's, that's one of the things we learned from Jesus is that we're not the center of the universe, he is. There are higher priorities than our own well-being. There are higher priorities than our sense of satisfaction in life. Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of God is bigger and better than our own little kingdoms. And true life then is to live in the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king. And since the priorities of the king that we're serving involve serving others, then those priorities must become ours as well. If we're going to live in the kingdom. So in other words, Jesus profoundly shapes our worldview and a requirement of that Jesus-shaped worldview is that we must love one another. So as I come to faith in Christ, he changes how I see the world and part of that vision for the world around me now is a revelation that the world doesn't revolve around me, but I'm required to love people. And once, once our view of life and our role in the world is seen in a Jesus-shaped way, then listen, nothing can remain the same after that. Instead of living for ourselves, we must live for others. Instead of being consumed by self-love, we lovingly seek the good of others. And another way of thinking of it is to say that belief in Jesus or faith in Jesus shapes our love. It shapes our love. Because as I put my faith in him and I trust in the name of the Lord, that I'm, then his character changes my character. 
You know, there, there's really nothing like crisis to reveal what people really believe. And the, the tragedy of the Titanic was therefore very revealing. One of the victims of the Titanic's catastrophic sinking was a pastor by the name of John Harper, who, whose story is recorded in Moody Adams, uh, by Moody Adams in the book called the, the Titanic's Last Hero. Harper led a vibrant Baptist church in London, and he was traveling to Chicago on the Titanic to preach for several weeks at Moody Church, where his preaching the previous year had been very, very successful. He was a widower, so his wife was gone, but he, he traveled, he was on board the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter, whose name was Annie Jesse, and his sister, whose name was Jesse Leach. Well, when the Titanic hit the, an iceberg in the middle of April, uh, in, excuse me, in the night, on the night of April 14, 1912, he was able to put his daughter and sister on lifeboat number 11. Before putting his daughter on the, the lifeboat, he knelt down and kissed her and told her that she would see him again someday. With his loved ones safely away, Harper returned to the deck of the Titanic and began yelling, Women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. As the ship then eventually began to break into two, Harper jumped into the icy dark waters along with many others. That night, 1,528 people went into the water. John Harper was seen swimming to people in the water, trying to lead them to Jesus before it was too late. He swam up to young, one young man who was clinging to some, de, some debris and Harper asked him if he was saved. The young man was not. He tried to lead the young man to Christ, but the man refused. So Harper took off of his life jacket and threw it to the young man saying, here, you need this more than I do. And he swam to other people. A few minutes later, he returned to the young man, but this time he was successful in leading him to Christ. And of the multitude in the water that night, only, only a, a few were, were, were rescued. Well, that young man was one of them. In Hamilton, Ontario, four years later, this survivor recounted how John Harper had led him to Christ. He saw him swimming to help other people. And before succumbing to the frigid waters, Harper's last words were as he shouted out, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's an amazing little-known story about courageous faith in a moment of crisis. Not only did John Harper's actions that night prove the depth of his belief in the name of the Lord Jesus, because he, he truly believed it to his core because he was like, I don't need a life jacket, you do, because I know where I'm going. But, but, but his actions were marked by love. He saw that people needed saving, and, uh, and not, but they didn't need saving from the waters. They needed saving from their sins. And he spent his last moments lovingly sharing the good news of Jesus with the lost, though he could have escaped safely on lifeboat number 11 with his beloved daughter. Harper's worldview had been profoundly changed by belief in Jesus. And his worldview required him to love others more than he loved himself. His example is a wonderful, powerful illustration 
of how believing in the name of Jesus and loving others go hand in hand. And you know what? Christians are enabled to love. We said it at the very beginning of this study tonight that loving others is much easier said than done. It is not an easy thing to do. I guarantee everything in, in, uh, in uh, John Harper's natural uh, 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 response to what was going on would be save yourself, get up there in that lifeboat with your daughter, with your, excuse me, and with your sister. But, but there was something in him that enabled him to love in a way that said, all that really matters is eternity. Christians are enabled to love others because of Jesus' new life imparted into his people by the Spirit. It's the last thing he said. We know that we're saved because we have the Spirit. And this is the first mention in the, this, this epistle of the mutual indwelling of Christ and the believer. The mutual indwelling, what does that mean? It just means that Christians abide in Christ and that, and that God, we abide in, abide in him and God abides in them in us. So God and the believers live in one another. The, the presence of the Spirit in each believer's life makes this possible. The Christian lives in the Spirit, and the Spirit lives in the Christian. I think, I think the best analogy, and, and there's no analogy, there's no illustration that's ever going to be perfect uh, for spiritual things, but I think the best analogy we have to understand this is a human being's relationship to air. People Listen, we ha I think you'll understand, you'll get this. We have to live in the air, don't we? Why? We have to live in the air so that the air can come into us. Right? If we don't, if we're not living in the air, then we're not going to have any air in us and our bodies are going to die. See that? So, so we're living in the air and yet the air is in us. It's kind of... It, it, another way of saying it is, is what it, the scripture records in Acts 17, 28, where, it, where Paul said, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are in him and therefore his, and his spirit is in us. And that is how we know we are followers of Christ. That's how we know one of the ways that we know we're saved because we have his spirit. And that indwelling spirit uh, provides believers the presence of the indwelling Christ. And, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit empowers us to be the people that God wants us to be. And it's constantly, he's constantly working in us to change us. Constantly working in us to help us to love other people the way Christ loved us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the ways we know that we are followers of Christ. Listen, would you bow your head, close your eyes, and let's pray together. Father, Lord, we so easily fall short of this mark. But God, we, we also know that we're, we're not earning our way to heaven. This is your grace. It's the work of, 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 of Christ in us. It's the, it's the empowerment of your spirit. And God, we know that we do fall short, but we're not going to get hung up on that. We're going to get up. We're going to confess when we sin. We're going to keep moving. We're going to keep walking. But in that process, God, I'm just asking that you would continue to transform us. That God, in the, in the name of Jesus, that your character 
would be transposed into us and that we would learn to love people the way you loved us. That we would reflect your love the way John Harper did, where we say, you know what, all that matters is eternity. And so I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that other people are right with God because that is the greatest expression of love. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that is struggling with condemnation or self-condemnation uh, or false guilt or, or maybe it's even real guilt, Lord, I pray that they would just deal with it, that tonight if there's sin, that we would just confess our sin to you and that we would receive that forgiveness and move on. But Lord, if there's somebody struggling with false guilt, I pray that you would deliver them, that the lies of the enemy would be exposed, and Lord, that, that, uh, uh, that they would find peace and assurance in your presence and in the fact that not only are they in you, but you are in them. And we'll give you thanks for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.